knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner going, he's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he did, didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up to what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals, and I'm Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Ashley Glassick, and I, we don't have a new tagline, Ashley, so I'm like, what do I say? <laughs> we're a podcast for women. Yeah. We're not, we're not saying that anymore. So we're a podcast by women on Reformed Theology. How about that? <laughs> yeah. Right now, we're just a podcast on Reformed Theology, and we just happen to be women. That's all we'll say. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll get a better one soon. Yeah. Probably beginning of the year. We'll have something better. Exactly. So did you yeah. get your Christmas tree up? Yeah. I actually have a funny story about putting up my Christmas tree. Um, my husband really does – he's very, like, you cannot play Christmas music before Thanksgiving – um, so when he's not home, I play Christmas music, um, but otherwise I don't. Um, and he's like, I really wanted to put the Christmas tree up the day after Thanksgiving. And he was like, no, that's still November. Um, we can't put it up. We need to wait until uh, December. Uh, so he was very serious about this. You know, he just feels <laughs> very strongly. And so, you know, the day after Thanksgiving, He's a good husband. He goes and gets the fake Christmas tree out of the garage and we start putting it up anyway. And he's, you know, didn't really want to, whatever. And um, we, he has like a collection of ornaments that his family is very like every year they give you a new Hallmark ornament in these like collections. Have you ever seen those? Yep. My sister-in-law does the same thing. With yeah. And so he has like a very extensive collection because he's in his late 20s, you know, and he's been getting them since he was a baby. And so he has like complete collections of these ornaments, you know, that now are ours. And so we're setting up the tree and he's like, he's like, no, 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 you, you have to put the hobbits together. You, no, no, you need to put, you know, Frodo and Bilbo should be in the same area. And he's like, no, actually, I think Ron and Hermione and Hagrid should all be together. I don't think you should separate them like that. It was just so funny. 
because I was like, I thought you were the one that did, was that interested in putting up the Christmas tree. And here he is taking it very seriously in the placement of the ornaments. Um, so I was just laughing. It was really fun. Um, we got our Christmas tree up on the day after Thanksgiving. And it's decorated and my cats are very curious about it. Do your cats, my cat, when we had a cat, she would, or he would try to climb up the Christmas tree and I would find him in trying to climb up the middle of the Christmas tree. Yeah, um, we've been trying to discourage that. I haven't seen it yet. Okay. But when they go near the tree, we watch them very closely. I wouldn't put it past them though, when we're gone to do that. Yeah. Yeah, they used to, my cats used to also knock the ornaments down, but the worst was my dog. Right. When you have a hundred pound dog that's trying to go under the tree and yeah. actually we actually my... do a fake tree because I am allergic to Christmas trees. Oh, interesting. I would just be miserable. Um, we yeah. did real trees for a couple of years and I would just be miserable the whole time and I just couldn't do it anymore. Uh, serious topic today. We're going to be talking about the regular principle of worship, but I thought I'd mention something that actually you had put a post in the group asking if people had questions and something came up and I thought was kind of interesting that I thought maybe talk about before we talk about this. And that has to do with emotions in worship. And I can't remember hmm. the exact thing that was sad, but I think there's this assumption. I think it was something about Presbyterians not believing in any emotions in hmm. worship. So, Ashley, on the on the emotions and um, what what do you think about this idea that someone's saying Presbyterians don't believe that we should have any emotions in worship? Uh, I understand because uh, the outside looking in when you see all oh, these people just sing hymns and there's really not that many instruments, if any, uh, it seems rather boring. Uh, so I can see how someone could make that assumption. I think though, if you're actually in a Presbyterian church and you've actually been a part of, or, or a Reformed Baptist church that, that does the same thing, um, and you've actually been a part of uh, that kind of worship, you wouldn't say that. Cause you know that I, it's not an emotional, uh, or anything. I mean, we were talking about a few of us about certain hymns that every time, you know, that certain line comes up in Rock of Ages, it just, it's hard to fight back tears and, and things like that. Um, so I would say it's not that it's unemotional. It just doesn't appear to be outwardly, like there's not people dancing. Um, there's not people like weeping. There's not people with hands in their air, hands in the air, things like that. So it doesn't look like it's emotional, but I think inwardly, there's a range of emotions that people experience um, during during uh, that type of worship service. Right, and so, and sometimes even outwardly, like you were talking about with the tears. And mm -hmm. I I think one of the things is that even myself through the years, understanding our worship service and, and even just growing in my understanding of God's grace, where there is for me in the worship service, so much joy. And, and even those tears are often because I am grateful for God's grace. Yeah. I mean, more often than not, it's not because I'm sad. It's because I'm joyful. Yeah, and something we should probably clarify, 
when we use the word worship in this episode, we're not talking about music. Uh, yeah. the, the evangelical church as a whole, when you say worship, they're like, oh, the songs we sing at the beginning. We're actually talking about the entire worship service. Uh, so the creeds, the prayer, the singing, the preaching of the word, all of that is worship. So just to be clear with our terms, we're not we're not just talking about the hymns we're singing or, or anything. Because I was even thinking, there are times I get emotional when we recite the Apostles' Creed, saying this is what I believe. I mean, it's it can be very moving, you know, and that's part of the worship service. I have so many notes and so much scripture for this episode, and we, we're not going to get to even... A only a tiny bit we'll get to, but what I listened to, you and I had both heard Presby cast, R. Scott Clark talking about it. And he had said that he was talking about that same thing, what you were talking about, Ashley, that worship isn't just the music. And, and he said that idea came out of revivalism and something that we might even talk when we have Dr. Hart on, talk to him a little bit about when we talk to him about American Protestantism, but he, R. Scott Clark also said that, you know, the music shouldn't even be the primary th aspect of our worship. You know, no. it, there's a reason why we call it the worship service, because all of it is corporate worship. So, Someone did ask, so as we kind of get started here, where someone did ask, where did the regular principle of worship, like that word, come from? I think that was Jean that asked that. Yes. And according to R. Scott Clark, that term originated in the 1950s. And if you read older texts like Calvin, uh, Calvin called it the rule of worship. So we call it the regulative principle of worship, but uh, I think historically it was called the rule of worship. But I think regulative makes a lot of sense using that term because we're talking about God regulating our worship. So. I can understand how that term yeah. is used. And I think both both are absolutely appropriate. And we'll probably mention R. Scott Clark a lot. <laughs> Poor thing that we, we mention him a lot. But he has written so many great things on this, and many of which I'll link in the notes. And so that's one reason why we mention him. You know, I think we should maybe go to a quick break and then come back and and then kind of talk about what, because I, I just realized some people might be saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. What This podcast is a member of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another podcast episode with Semper Reformanda Radio. Hi. Welcome to Theology Gals. Welcome, everyone, to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. Well, welcome to the School of Biblical Hermeneutics. Welcome, everybody, to Grappling with Theology. What is going on, guys? Shine as lights coming at you. Well, welcome to Slick Answers. Good evening, and welcome to the Conversations from the Port. On Hello and welcome to Living in the Vine. This is the Council of Google Plus. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Bible Thumping Wingnut Podcast. The Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Twelve podcasts, one network. Check them out at BibleThumpingWingnut.com. In simplest terms, we only do in worship what God commands. That's what the regulative principle of worship is. And it differs from the normative um, principle. Normative principle says we don't do what God forbids. But the regulative principle says we only do what God commands in worship. Okay. So you want to share kind of your the first time you heard about it? And uh, Yeah, I actually, so I've shared that I, you know, I started 
attending a Presbyterian church on accident, kind of. Um, and I, I didn't hear the term for quite a while, but I did know when I started attending my Presbyterian church. So I did know that um, at my church, the worship was a lot different than what I was used to um, from my, my old uh, Calvinistic Baptist kind of church. Um, it was very liturgical. We only sang hymns, uh, you know, a lot of standing, sitting, standing, sitting, which I wasn't used to. I was used to like, you stand for a few minutes at the beginning, sing some songs and then sit for the rest of the time. Um, but I remember we were driving, I used to carpool with my husband and our friend Daniel to work and we were driving and we were listening to the reform pubcast and they were talking about the regulative principle versus the normative principle. And I was like, what's that? You know, like I, I really had no idea. And so I remember, um, my husband and Daniel kind of explaining it to me, um, and I was like, oh, that explains why our worship is the way that it is. But I wasn't necessarily like, this is like an important thing or that it's necessary. So, so yeah, just, I, I wasn't, I was kind of like, mm, okay, like, I don't really understand. Like, I can see why this kind of worship is better than the kind of worship I'm used to, but it wasn't like I was like, Oh, biblically, that makes sense. So it, it took me kind of a while. But I know, speaking of the, the Reformed podcast, um, I've listened to them since the very beginning. And they had an episode, one of their second or third episodes, I think, where they made fun of the regulative principle. And then some people kind of got on them like, hey, you should actually. And then, of course, they came back, you know, some episodes later and we're like yeah we didn't really understand the regulative principle so i i've always really appreciated them because i feel like i learned a lot while they were learning as well um and i always found that kind of funny you reformed right along with them yes yes for me i've told the story before that i was kind of a kind of in the beginning of of understanding reformed theology and I looked up in the yellow pages under reformed in the church's section and I, the only church that I saw, well, I think there was a Christian reformed church, but not close to me. And then there was a reformed Presbyterian church. I didn't even know at that point, like I actually thought Presbyterians were all PCUSA, but I thought, okay, well, reformed Presbyterian is probably good. And so for those not familiar, Reformed Presbyterian, sing only the Psalms and don't use instruments. And so for me, that was really a really big shift for me because that's where my husband, well, I started attending church there. And then when my husband and I started dating, he ended up switching to that church. And, and we attended there our first year of marriage till we moved and joined and then went with the OPC that was near us. But for me, initially, and I'm just going to be real honest here, even though I'm not, I don't believe in exclusive psalmody now, but initially I was very much reactionary against it. Like, oh, that just can't be true. And I think looking back, initially I did not even research it, really look at scripture. It was on some of the things because I think I didn't want to, even consider letting go of some of the things that were important to me at the time. When I realized that, I really had to step back and say, okay, I need to actually go to scripture. Because I, as a teenager, I had decided once that 
I didn't want to ever say I believe something unless I truly studied it in scripture. But you, but that also means saying that I don't believe something that maybe many Christians do believe. I had to go back and say, I need to go and look at scripture and not just be reactionary against, yeah. against this thing. And even though I, I did not, and we'll talk about that a little bit because there's differences in how, how the regular principle plays out where some people believe in only singing the Psalms and not using instruments. And they believe, you know, in the regulative principle, as does our churches, for instance, Ashley, where they do use instruments and sing mm -hmm. Psalms and hymns. Yeah. So um, I think we should start by talking about um, just what, how important worship is. Uh, I doubt any of our listeners are convinced otherwise. Uh, a couple interesting things, though, uh, I thought is you see it very clearly in Calvin's writings, in our catechisms and things like that. Uh, we'll get to scripture. Don't worry. I'm not just going to quote Calvin. But Calvin, Calvin said that there are two things that sum up Christian religion. And he said the first is I'm, I'm uh, paraphrasing here. The first is how God should be worshipped. Uh, Soli Deo Gloria, and the second is how we have salvation. And so I thought it was interesting that Calvin, who of course held to the regulative principle uh, or the rule of worship, um, puts worship first. He says that, I just, I thought it was interesting that Calvin says that there are two things that sum up Christian religion that, and the first one that he mentions is how God should be worshiped, that that's so essential to our religion is how we worship God. And our first duty as humans is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Westminster one, that that's our first duty is to glorify God. And so you just see that worship is very, very important as Christians. Um, this isn't a secondary issue. <laughs> how we should worship possibly is, but but worship, whether or not worship is important, is not a, is not a secondary issue. And um, when I was listening to R. Scott Clark talk about this, he said that public worship is the source of private piety and devotion. Um, so that's just showing, like, without without that public worship, I know there's like a a trend going on. I've seen it on Twitter of being unchurched or you know things like that. But public worship really should be driving our private piety and devotion. And um, he mentioned that if you look at the evangelical world, the focus is not on public worship. The focus is on private. And I, this was my experience growing up too, that it seemed like the most important thing you could do was have your quiet time right? Or your, what, what was it called? Devos or devotionals. Not that those things aren't important, but that seemed like, man, that is, if I'm doing one thing as a Christian, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And when you read a lot of um, the reformers talking about this, they complete, completely flip that over. Uh, they start with public worship um, and how important that is, and then get to how that affects your private you know, devotionals or devos or quiet time or whatever you want to call it. Um, and also just 
how you carry out your life. So I, I, I really thought that discussion was really interesting. Um, just that evangelicism has kind of flipped, um, flipped the importance there. You see that even in the way that things have changed in American Protestantism, where it's become this very individualistic thing. You know, instead of our piety and practice flowing from our corporate worship, instead of that, we have everybody doing their own personal thing. And now we're just going to come come together for this little time now that we've done our own individual thing. And I don't think that's what we see in scripture. Something I wanted to mention, because I think when we're talking about the regulative principle of worship, is that we do differentiate between the elements and the circumstances. That's something okay. you'll hear in in reform, in reform circles. So we have elements and we have circumstances on the worship of God. What are examples of elements, Ashley? So elements are the things that we have to have in worship. So preaching of the word, prayer, uh, and and we we'll, we can actually get into later maybe what what else. But but basically, word and prayer need to be in worship. If those things aren't in worship, then we can't really call it worship. So that those are the elements of worship. So usually that'll involve uh, preaching, uh, reading of the word. Um, sometimes it involves confession and administration of the sacraments as part of, that's the demonstration of, of the word. And then prayer is public prayer. Um, some would say that singing is part of prayer, uh, maybe reciting the Lord's prayer, maybe a pastoral prayer, praying for the congregation. So those are elements. Those are things that are, they just have to be there. And we, we can, you know, there's differences on what exactly elements there are and things like that. But when it comes down to it, they're just those, the elements need to be there. Right. And then circumstances are things that are not addressed in, in scripture and things like what time your church yeah. says. And we know that it needs to be on Sunday. But um, but we're not told what time or yeah. how long it should last or whether you have to use hymnals. Mm -hmm. um, what language, yeah. what language your service is in, uh, using lights, using a sound system. Th those, those things are not, you can have them, you cannot have them. It doesn't matter. It doesn't affect worship. So... I think we maybe we can get into that later. That's a common objection to the regulative principle. It's some people will say, "Well, if you're only going to do what God commands, then you better take the light bulbs, you know, out of your church because there was no light bulbs." <laughs> and that's just kind of a silly argument because that's that's not at and all. That's why we differentiate between the elements and the circumstances. Yeah, you know, your church, what time you meet, how long your pastor preaches, and maybe even the order. Um, yeah. of your liturgy differs from mine. And mm -hmm. yet both of us believe both of, of our churches hold to the regulative principle. And I think yeah. that may be the case with, with a lot of people. Real, real quick, you know, as I said, I've got, I've got so many resources that I'm going to be linking for you because there's so much from the, the catechism and the confession on this. And I'm not going to read, read all of it right now, but the the wonderful thing, and I'm going to link specifically some pages 
on the Catechism and Confession is that they have all the proof texts. Mm -hmm. And on this page that I'm going to link, you can actually, as you're reading through it, it'll have like the little number and you can click on it and it'll take you right to that verse. So if you want to do an in-depth study, that's very helpful because it's not just the Catechism and Confession. It's actually points it says what it does based on scripture and i think it would be really helpful for it, at least it has been for me to do a study of the, the regulative principle mm -hmm. so i think it's important to note that uh the the regulative principle is derived from the second commandment uh that's an important part um we believe that in the second commandment um god's commanding rightful worship of him and uh, we see this a lot in scripture i was thinking of hebrews 12 26 28 excuse me where it says therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus and thus let us offer to god acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our god is a consuming fire and that reference, consuming fire, is to, to Exodus, where it talks about God being a jealous God. And so we see even in Hebrews there, it's talking about acceptable worship. The, the worship that we're offering to God needs to be acceptable. And so the question really is, is how do we determine, you know, based on Scripture, how do we determine what acceptable worship is? If it's so important, how do we know? I wanted to mention something real quick too before I get into some of these passages is that some people see this as rules against what I cannot do in worship. And that's actually not what the regular principle of worship is. It's what you should do in worship. It's not just you shouldn't stand on your head in worship because God told you not to or, you know, but here let's look at what we ought to do in worship. And really the best place to start really, I think, even though you're going to see it, the theme through all of scripture is what you said, Ashley, which is the second commandment. I think one thing that we see in the Old Testament is that God is not, um, he, he deals with those who do not worship in the way that he's told them to. So one example we see um, is when Moses is up at Mount Sinai and he returns and the Israelites have constructed this golden calf to, to worship God using the golden calf. We see um, in Exodus 32 that, so God tells Moses, go down the mountain because they have already, he says specifically, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. And he says, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation for you. And then Moses pleads with God um, you know, to spare them. Uh, but you see there that you know, God, God's wrath against wrong worship. And what's interesting, I think, about this is they literally just got the Ten Commandments, the Israelites. Like, this is only 12 chapters after the Ten Commandments were given. So the Second Commandment 
I mean, they've just been given it to them. And here they are, you know, collecting, it says collecting all the gold they can to make this golden calf. And, and Aaron even says they make this golden calf. And he says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And so they think that somehow they're making a golden calf to like honor the Lord, to worship. And God's just like, this is not what I've commanded you to do. Um, and you see how angry he is. Um, there's another example I like in Second Chronicles, Second uh, Chronicles 29. He, God has commanded them to to kind of get organized and worship in a very specific way, and it should be noted that this is very much types and shadows because it talks about you know bringing the goats for the sin offering, and the priests slaughtered them and things like that. Um, but when we get to verse 25. So Second Chronicles 29, 25, he says, And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres, according to the commandment of David and of God, the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet. For the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. So you see, if you read this whole chapter, you see an actually very ordered worship. You know, it talks about step by step, seven rams, seven lambs, seven male goats, uh, how they were to line up and things like that. And then you see later on it's saying, and this was a command for, from God, this is how our worship was supposed to be ordered. So, you know, obviously that's not what we do today. You know, this, this was types and shadows. This is pointing to what's to come. And so we can't look at this and then go, oh, so God commanded us to have seven goats and seven rams and and things like that. that. That's that's not the point I'm making. I'm, I'm just making the point that God God made it very clear this is how I want you to worship me. And, and they're following that here. This is actually a good story. They're, they're, they're following the order that, that God has commanded through the prophets. So, and um, what about, what about the new Testament? Colleen? Yeah, I was actually thinking we were talking that people might say, yeah, but it's different now. We don't have to do all of these things that God commanded in, in the old Testament. Still, it doesn't change that we are to worship the way that God that God has commanded and somebody who's written a lot about this and and I'm going to link some of it, the stuff that he's written is G.I. Williamson so I he and he has some study guides of the Westminster standards but he points to John 4 with Christ and the Samaritan woman and he says first he condemns the forms of worshiping God which the Samaritans used as superstitious and as false and declares that the acceptable and lawful form was with the Jews. He puts the reason for the difference that the Jews received assurance from the word of God about his worship, whereas the Samaritans had certainly from God's lips. Secondly, he declares that the ceremonies observed by the Jews hitherto would soon be ended. So you, you have that. But the other thing is, is that Jesus actually there condemns the the forms of worshiping God. And I think one thing that I think about a lot is why would we not worship in the way that God has commanded? And I, I think one of the problems when we were talking about worshiping music is that worship has become more all about me. You know, it's all about me feeling something. It's all about me getting something out of it instead of about us glorifying God. Hmm. Another passage that I think is actually speaks 
very well to this is in Colossians 2. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. In Colossians 2, 20, he says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. So he's actually referring to asceticism here in Judaizers. Um, according to human precepts and teachings. These, in verse 23, he says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so you might be thinking, well, how does that relate to worship? So he's saying, why, why are you depending on human understanding and reasoning? Like why you... You've died to the elemental spirits of the, this world. Um, why are you trying to, in a worldly way, using your own conscience and, and gut, you know, to decide things? Why would you depend on that um, for how, how you're living your life? And I, and I think that's kind of gets to the heart of the regulative principle is why, why would we depend on our own fallen minds, you know, and hearts to decide what what's an acceptable way uh, to worship God um, rather than than seek to understand how God wants to be worshiped. Like it says in Hebrews that offering acceptable worship, I mean, I just know that like my heart is not should not be a decider in in what is acceptable it to in worshiping god i love that there's there's a lot of implications from colossians to not just to our worship um there's a lot of ways in which we can depend on human reasoning you know in our christian walk yeah and i think i think one of the things is we've maybe lost sight of what the the what and why of worship you know what what is worship you think about you know if you go to a christian bookstore you're going to find all kinds of books on on church growth and becomes all about getting more people in the door and and this sort of thing and and then what they do is that a lot of those churches will actually change things in their worship to attract people and i think i think we've just lost sight of what is worship and why and why do we worship? And when worship becomes about us and feeling a certain thing and getting something specific out of, of it, mm -hmm. and we are going to start catering our worship to our own desires. I mean, basically what you were talking about in the Colossians passage. And yeah. I, I know that, and I remember when I was a teenager and wasn't reformed, and I remember one of my friends will say, would say, you know, I visited such and such a church on Sunday. Oh, how did you like it? Well, I, I really didn't get anything out of the worship. Okay, and, that, and they're talking specifically the time of singing. Yeah. And so, but that actually points to what worship has become about in mm -hmm. so many churches, about, it's all about me. It's, yeah. And when you have that individualistic view of the faith, 
And so it's like my faith is all this very personal, individualistic thing. And on Sundays, we just all come together and do it together for a day. Then I think, I think at that time too, it's still all of this becomes all about me and doing what we want to do, what makes us feel good instead of knowing that worship is about glorifying God. This isn't about me. It's actually about him. And so therefore, should we not worship God in the way that he's told us to worship him? Instead yeah. of, if it's about God, then we ought to be worshiping God the way he's told us to. If it's about me, then we might do all these other things that make me feel good. Yeah. Obviously, we don't, we'd have to do like a 20-part series to literally get to all the passages and, and everything, which is why I really would like everybody to look at the resources and all the verses and things that I put out. But I, want, I think we should talk a little bit about, so, so what has God commanded? What yep. things ought to be in our worship? Yeah. So, well, the one thing we see that's very clear um, we see this in Acts 15, Revelations 1, that the reading of Scripture should be should be in our worship. Um, I don't think anyone would disagree with that, and um, we see that. The, uh, another one we see in 2 Timothy 4.2 is that the preaching of the Word is very important. I, I remember when I first started going to Reformed Church, it's the first time I saw the call to worship. That was something that, you know, I didn't initially understand the significance of it. But in Reformed churches, it starts with the call to worship. In fact, I think in a lot of Reformed churches, they'll even do the announcements prior mm -hmm. to that, yep. prior to the call to worship. So we're not doing those those other things. And um, we see that. And, in Romans 1 7 and then and then also a response by God's people from his word so we have singing or maybe some sort of responsive reading or something like mm -hmm. that in the yeah and I think because it seems like the word is so important in worship uh, in scripture uh, the hearing of the word the preaching of the word the reading of the word um, I think it's important that we hold the word very high in worship. So like one thing I really like that my church does, and I'm sure there's other churches that do this, is when the pastor is reading God's word, everyone stands. And sometimes he'll read like a whole, you know, a whole chapter of the Old Testament and then an entire chapter of the New Testament. You're like, man, I'm standing for a long time. <laughs> Um, which is not something I ever did, you know, when I was in a kind of more evangelical church. But we're just showing kind of that reverence for God's word in worship. Um, so just showing, I guess, how important that is. You know, what's interesting is that I don't know if this practice continued, but I, when we got a new pastor at the church that I grew up in, he actually said, um, actually talked about that specifically and started implementing standing when the word was read. Hmm. And that, that wasn't even a, a reformed church. Um, then we also have the sacraments in mm -hmm. worship, which is the Lord's Supper and 
and baptism. baptism. And that might not be something that's that's practiced every single week, but it is something that we only practice in worship. Yeah. In fact, I wanted to, in fact, let me quickly, actually, I'm going to quote a friend of mine. He, he's an OPC pastor, even though I didn't ask him, so I won't name him, because I had actually asked him a question. It was actually about the sacraments only being practiced in the worship service. You know, we don't do communion in our family worship. So what he said, it was, one of the starting places for me is in the understanding of the sacraments as most properly a corporate event of the body of Christ. The sacraments of the Old Testament were always performed as part of the corporate worship of God. Even Passover and the peace offerings were celebrated in the homes, but they began as a corporate worship. In the New Testament, the sacrament of baptism and communion are instituted by Christ within the context of the corporate body and with the promise of Christ's presence in them. Mm. That being a foundation, we then see how important the sacrament is for the church in that baptism is an initiation sacrament while communion is a sustaining sacrament of the whole mm. body. Yeah. Really no con and he talks about there's no concept in the church of sacraments outside of, of that. So even within our worship, some of the, the elements of worship, some of these things are things that we only do in in the worship service. Right, like like you might sing hymns and in, in psalms at home. That's not something that's only commanded in for worship. But you wouldn't be baptizing people at your house or or doing communion with um you know with your family during family worship. That's something we only do during worship. Right. So you're not going to, uh, you know, baptize your children at family worship. <laughs> and actually, right. let me read this from the, the Westminster Confession. The Sabbath is to be kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly appointments, employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in public and private exercises of his worship and the duties of necessary necessity and, and mercy, which I know that has more to do and probably focus a little bit more on the Sabbath, but that also, which I'm linking and you can even see, you know, the verses that, that talk about that very thing that setting aside. And another thing we see clearly. So we talked about, um, so we talked about the importance of the word in in our worship and out of the word comes a lot of things, including the sacraments and things like that. Um, but the other really important one we see is uh, prayer. Um, and, and there's a lot of implications for, for prayer as well. Uh, I know I'm, I'm trying to count. I think we pray like six times, you know six separate times during our, our worship service. I don't know if you're, you know, we pray at the beginning. We pray, you know, to bless our tithes and offerings. We have a congregational prayer. Uh, my pastor closes in prayer. Okay, maybe that's like five or four. <laughs> but there's a lot of prayer throughout. Yeah. Like, I know um, not every week, but our church has often a, a corporate confession. A prayer yes. That is, okay. Yeah. I forgot that one. And what I think is interesting, too, what we see is a lot of um, 
like the pattern of worship is really different than what you might see in evangelical churches where it's a lot of like response on the part of the congregation it's not like in the congregation isn't just like passively sitting there like the congregation is really involved in worship for example um we will do like a uh reading of the law every sunday we do reading of the law which i still want to talk about that sometime and then um my pastor will read an assurance of pardon so like you read the law and you feel the weight of the law and then my pastor assures you that you're pardoned if you're in Christ. And then we respond joyfully with a hymn or a psalm about the fact that we, every week we're being reminded that we are pardoned. Um, and I think that looks different in every church, you know, like it's not as if, I think what people want when we talk about the regular principle is to see a verse where God's like, or Paul or something, you know, Paul's like, all right, your order of worship should be, we don't see that in scripture. There isn't, there isn't like a verse that just gives us everything. But what we do see is God caring a lot about how he's worshiped. And then we see throughout the New Testament, this is what that looks like um, in the New Testament church. And the regulative principle is kind of draw on from scripture and say, okay, we think we think our worship should only be what God's commanded. Um, you're not gonna if you if you're wanting that verse that that where Paul's telling you that the regular principle is biblical, you will not find that verse. Um, so I, I think that's important because um, because people will be like, well, show me the verse. I mean, the common term I hear is good and necessary consequence. So we see a common pattern or theme in scripture. And from that, we can draw a conclusion that, okay, God cares about how he's worshiped and we should worship in the way he has commanded. We don't necessarily need a, a verse that, that very concisely says exactly that. The idea, the idea is there. It's there. Of scripture. And this is actually something that we find with many of our doctrines. Let's say the Trinity. Okay. There's, we don't have, we do not have one verse which proclaimed everything about the Trinity, but we see it, we see what we believe about the Trinity throughout the entirety of scripture. And I would say that the same is true with the regulative principle of worship. That's why it is important to consider, we look at the entirety of scripture. And so this is, this is a theme that we see throughout the entirety of scripture. Yeah. You know, another thing I wanted to mention, and some people might not know this, there's always a lot of emphasis on, on John Calvin because the regular principle was very important at the Reformation because, as you know, the Catholic Church was doing, you know, they, they were doing normative extreme. They were doing all kinds of crazy stuff. One thing that did come out of the Reformation was the rule of worship. And a lot of times people focus only on Calvin's soteriology, but a lot of people would say that worship, his emphasis on worship was even greater than his emphasis on soteriology. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, someone asked in our group about the cultural implications of the regulative principle. So like, um, will it look the same you know, if you're in Africa or South America or Asia, you know, as it does in North America, 
which I think is a good question, like missionaries and, and things like that. I think it probably looks different in my Southern California church than it does in your Denver church. <laughs> and not, not because of the elements, but because of the circumstances. Because of the circumstances. So I think um, it might look a little different everywhere you go, but I think the same basic, like you're saying, elements, the same basic elements uh, would be there. Um, and you're you're not going to see inventive things, you know, like, um, you know, like doing an offertory with like dancing or um, doing in place of preaching, doing a drama, because we just don't see any warrant for doing those things in scripture. You're going to see a pastor preaching the word. Maybe they order things. Maybe they do the assurance of pardon later. And maybe, you know, they don't read the Apostles' Creed. They read the Nicene Creed or something. You know, it, it, I think it does look different from place to place. So I think sometimes, I do think the regulative principle is a strict interpretation of worship. But I think it's not as strict as some people believe it to be where... They're just very wondering about other cultures and and how it might look there. So, yeah, and I think somebody I don't it may have been in my reading when they were talking about talking about this very thing. Uh, I think they were talking against the regulative principle because they said, "But look at different cultures; it's going to look different," and and stuff like that. But I think that you might have some cultural differences in the circumstances or maybe the tunes that they sing the psalms to or the hymns to may be different and you know closer to things in their own in their yeah. own culture but they still would have the elements there i mean i i know of some reformed pastors and missionaries in in other countries yeah i'm thinking of we have we have quite a few um, church plants in Nigeria and Kenya. And I'm thinking, oh, I wonder what what it looks like there. You know, like I, I'm sure it's very similar, but I'm sure there's, you know, just some differences um, in how that would look. But I, I, think it's, I think as long as the principle is being followed of we're not adding things, we're not coming up with new ways to worship God that we don't see evidence of in scripture. I think that's, that's what's important. And, and um, we might want to say, Colleen, that there's different interpretations of the regulative principle. Um, uh, in fact, I think actually I don't hold the most conservative view of it uh, because some would say, that the regulative principle implies that you should only be singing inspired um, texts. So you should only be singing psalms um, and things like that. So those are our brothers and sisters that hold to exclusive psalmody. Um, and so that's, that, that is an implication for them of the regulative principle that I, I personally don't hold to. But um, I think it's good to know that there's some variety in the Reformed world on on the regulative principle. And another thing I wanted to say is someone mentioned, isn't the regulative principle like a Presbyterian thing? And it's not at all. It's it's a reform thing because um, those of our, our sisters in the group that go to confessional Baptist churches, um, the London Baptist Confession is very similar to the Westminster 
on worship. And so if you go to like an Arbka church, uh, they're going to be holding to the regular pencil as well at, at, at that confessional Baptist churches. So um, it's definitely not just a Presbyterian thing. I, I think it's just a confessional thing. Confessional churches are going to hold to the regular principle. Yeah, and that's a good point. From from the things that you had at, that you had asked, I think that there was some confusion in one of the conversations on on your post, Ashley. Someone said that somebody told them that somebody doesn't hold if they don't hold to the regulative principle, they aren't saved. And I, I've I've never ever ever heard such a thing. No, <laughs> in twenty three years of being reformed, so I yeah. just. That was, yeah, uh, that's not something that I have ever, ever, ever heard. So yeah. that's definitely not, not what we're, what we're saying. And I, I'm sure that, that many in our audience do not um, hold to it or their churches don't, but I would encourage you to study it. We have so many resources on this and, you know, just, just study it, study what, what God's, word has to say and you yeah. and i don't hold to exclusive psalmody i i know there's a view of exclusive psalmody there is a view that um you can sing all of scripture mm-hmm. um which i i lean towards but there are differences d- definitely differences among us yeah i think you and i both agree that scripture should be sung like we should be singing the psalms in our worship um but in in uh, my church, we do sing hymns that are not inspired. Uh, but we do think it's a very important to sing inspired psalms. Um, yeah. So yeah. So someone who holds to exclusive psalmody would disagree with us on that on that implication of the regular principle. And and that's you know that's neither here nor there. Just there's just a different just different view. Um. So yeah, I just Definitely. I. I think it's just important to know the variety of, of views within the regular principle. And I, I think there's a good argument for exclusive psalmody. So I, I do understand why, why they hold to that. Um, and I, and I really appreciate, um, you know, people that hold to exclusive psalmody, just how seriously they, they are willing to take worship, you know? So I really, really, really respect that a lot. Um, because I think, um, I mean, I don't want to always rag on evangelical churches, but I think there's just a real lack of seriousness in general about how important worship is. So I do think it's a serious thing. And I don't think, because I know we probably have a lot of listeners who hold to the normative principle. I don't think that they don't take worship seriously. That's that's not what I'm saying at all. Um, I mean, I just think we should study God's word and really try to understand, okay, what should we be doing in worship? Yeah, I I agree with you, and and we should all desire to take our worship serious. Yeah, and you know what we I know we're running like really late on on time. Please look at our resource sheets, and we didn't even barely even get we didn't even get to what as much as I had hoped that we would. Oh, can I say one more thing? Sure. Uh, so an objection to the regulative principle. So I don't know how common this is, but I've definitely heard this before. David danced for the Lord. So why can't we dance for the Lord in church? 
And so that's an argument people will make, like kind of trying to show that the regular principle isn't consistent. Well, uh, the way R. Scott Clark uh, kind of debunked that argument was, what if I brought a goat to church? <laughs> okay, I'm trying not to laugh. This is serious. What if I brought a goat to church and slaughtered that goat in church? Would you be like, that is a good thing that you did, you know? No, because we know that bringing goats to church and slaughtering goats in church is no longer... So you can't just find a narrative in scripture of something happening like David dancing and saying, oh, then we can then apply that to, to worship because we don't see that anywhere else in scripture in terms of like an actual corporate worship service. Um, so I, I honestly just thought that was a little funny. <laughs> but David dance, well, I could do that with literally any narrative in the Bible and it's not pretty. <laughs> You're like, I don't even want to comment on that. No, no, no uh, not at all. I, I feel almost feel, feel like we should have made this a two-part. Yeah. A two-part, because there's so much that I wish we would have had a chance to talk about. We may have to revisit this, revisit this again. And maybe if you have any questions for us, because I'm sure we did not answer all of them, feel free to message us or email us or leave us a voicemail. All of our information is on the website, BibleThumpingWingnut.com, and click on Theology Gals, and, and feel free to to message us if you've... Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, maybe if we didn't answer your question, because I know we couldn't get to them all. I know some people had some specific questions about uh, paedo-baptism in the worship service. Um, there were other more specific questions that we weren't able to answer, so... If we didn't get to your question and you still feel like, oh, you didn't really answer the question I had about it, yeah, go go ahead and message us and we'll we'll try to address it on another episode. Yeah. And I think we're gonna do a whole episode where we focus specifically on baptism. We did talk about it some in our covenant theology episode, but we are going to I know because it comes up so much. I think we just need to do a whole episode on on why we believe what we believe regarding regarding baptism so well we're going to go to a quick break and then come back for yeah about that looking for that perfect track for your next evangelism outreach look no further at trackplanet.com we have solid biblical tracks that are a breeze to hand out they are beautifully designed and are the highest quality tracks available with over 80 different designs in stock and literally hundreds more available by custom order, we're sure to have just the right one for you. You can get any of our items printed with your church or ministry information or have us design a brand new tract just for you. We are committed to the solid biblical message of law to the proud and grace to the humble. Each tract is firm on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the necessity of repentance and faith in salvation. Come check us out at trackplanet.com and make sure you use coupon code BTWN at checkout for 10% off your entire order. That's tractplanet.com, coupon code BTWN. For this week, our yeah about that is a little bit different. It's not really a quote, it's just, and it's something that probably most people have seen going around. Um, and that is there's an there's a guy who's going to be launching a rocket so he can prove that the earth is flat. Oh boy. <laughs> Are we going there? <laughs> well, 
I, it's just been everywhere. I thought that, that's that's when I want to say yeah about that. I'm curious. No, I doubt we have anyone who listens who who holds to that view. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, Colleen. I went to college, studied college level trigonometry, and you know, historically, when we discovered trigonomic functions, it had to do with the curvature of the Earth. So. I would say um, good luck with that. Um, I feel like the trigonometry and gravity is not going to be yeah, too actually, tight. I saw one of the flat earth guys say that science is not true. We don't base things on science. Hmm. So I would assume that that includes. And, or math, I'm guessing. Yeah, I would guess that includes math. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, when, when I think it was Ptolemy that discovered the, uh, he actually predicted, he was able, using a sundial, essentially, to estimate the uh, circumference of the Earth using a sundial That's and the reflection in, I want to say, around AD three or 400. Um, why do I keep information like that in my head? I do not know. But he was able to use the curvature of the Earth, I mean, using, using, <laughs> <laughs> using a, a sundial. And so... Um, yeah, I just, I really, I really don't, I thought it was, when people first started talking about the flat earth, I actually thought it was a joke. There is a flat earth um, organization that it's totally just making fun of people, but they, oh. if you go to it, it's, it's kind of like a Babylon Bee um, oh, okay. site, but it's just focused on, you know, it's like, it's like complete satire, but at the same time, just completely mocking people. And it's, and it, I think it's run by an atheist is what um, someone told me. So, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. apparently someone, apparently Elon Musk, do you know who Elon Musk is? Mm -hmm. So he on Twitter was like, why is there no flat Mars society? Why is there only a flat Earth society? And so the flat earthers were like, well, the curvature of Mars has been observed. The curvature of Earth has not. Right. So that's very funny. I mean, I'll tell you what, that that would be like the biggest conspiracy ever that NASA and everybody were all in on it. You know, we yeah. go to the moon. We I know I know there's did we go to the moon? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> well, won't even go there because I yeah. actually know a couple people who question who have question. I, I do, too. Question the moon. So I, know, I don't think that that's as bad as or as crazy I, I don't believe it but i mean i believe we went to the moon i am an extremely skeptical person it drives my sister crazy because like she'll be telling me something and i'll be like what's your source how do you know that where did you That's read that <laughs> and she's like why don't you just believe what i'm telling you and i and i'm like i'm sorry i just I'd like to know, like, what what's your source and how you know this to be true. So I'm just a very skeptical person. Um, I don't yeah. understand the flat Earth thing. So my my son actually a couple times he he told me the story and I just thought this just sounds I it just sounds weird. I I don't know about that. And he told me another story the next day and I'm like that's that's really. That sounds really weird. So I went online and I looked up these stories that he told me and they were from a fake news site. He, he had thought they were real stories. Oh, 
So I'm like, yeah, that site you got your stories from? Because I had told him, I said, send me that story. That's what happened, actually. I said, send me that story. I clicked on it and I recognized it right away. Um, wow. That's a fake news site. <laughs> it's not so funny. And um, these things did not actually happen. So I appreciate you guys joining us. We have some great episodes coming up in the next in the next few weeks. I won't um, tell you what they are, but we we just appreciate you guys listening to us. I did want to mention that I wanted to thank everyone that has committed to supporting us each month and we would ask you to, for those of you who enjoy the podcast, to consider. I mean, we've got, we have somebody giving a dollar a month, and I'm, I'm grateful. I'm very grateful. Yes. And some people giving three dollars a month, and you know, different amounts. And we're just, we're just very, very, very thankful. There's some new equipment that we want to get, and some other things that we'd like to do. So we just really, really appreciate that. And so, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. 